Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. Julie Henrik is the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am thrilled to welcome Kimberly G. Geritano to the podcast today. Kim is an author of Mysteries for Teens and Adults. Her debut novel, Grunge Gods and Graveyards, won the 2015 Silver Falcon Award for Best YA at Killer Nashville. A former librarian, she is currently an instructor at a SUNY Orange County Community College and a reviewer for Book Page. She is also the chapter liaison for Sisters in Crime. Born in New York and raised in New Jersey, Kim and her husband moved to the Poconos to raise their three kids among black bears and wild turkeys. While she doesn't miss the Jersey traffic, she does miss a good bagel and lox. Kim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to talk about your writing journey and your book that's coming out soon and everything else. But let's start this podcast as I always start this podcast. When did you say to yourself, I want to write a book? Um, I've always written but I never thought I could be a writer. I thought that was something you had to have like training to do and go to school for. When I was a young adult librarian, it was at the height of like twilight and a ton of why I was coming out. Um, great books and also some terrible ones. And I read every book that came across my desk and I would read some pretty crappy YA. And I was like, you know what, if this person can do it, I can do it. And so that's what I, <laughs> I decided to do. I was like, I can write a book. It took me many years. It's not that easy as we all know, but that's kind of what the impetus was. I was like, oh, this person, she, clearly, clearly I could sit down and write a book. I mean, <laughs> and was it always, um, going to be crime fiction for you? Um, n- well, since I, since I was a YA librarian, I started out writing young adult literature and the idea that I had in my head was like a, a romance ghost story. Um, and then I, I needed something for my characters to do while they were figuring themselves out. And a mystery just sort of fell into place. Um, and I think I realized, I was like, oh, man, I'm really good at plotting and figuring out clues, which is interesting because I'm not, um, you know, when people are like, I'm really good at details. I'm super detail oriented. I'm the opposite. I'm like a big picture person. And then I hope somebody else will figure out the details. <laughs> but in this case, it worked out well. I was like, oh, I know how to plot. This is great. I mean, it took a lot of rough drafts. I think six months I revised that book. So, um, and then, you know, books afterwards, I just naturally was like a mystery needs to be solved. Cause to me, that is what needs to happen. Otherwise, I don't know how I would fill the space. Sometimes I feel like mm-hmm. so, and then it just kept building. Um, I was like, oh, I want another do another ghost book. I went to Key West, Florida, and I was so inspired. I'm like, let's do another ghost story. And then like, but I have to solve a murder. Something has to happen. Yeah. So for listeners, can you define YA and sort of talk about that? Uh, It's on a trend. There's always been YA literature, but it's definitely um, coming forward. And there's different types of YA literature. 
in the canon now or or part of the conversation so that many different readers can find their way in? So young adult literature, so a librarian would look at young adult literature as an audience level. And they wouldn't look at it as a genre. I would never say I write mm-hmm. in the YA genre. I've written in the YA genre. It's an audience level. I'm writing with teens in mind. So, of course, mm-hmm. you have genres within young adult. You have mysteries. You have romance. You have fantasy, realistic fiction. You, you name it, it's there. Um, and I was a young adult librarian, so I was really in that YA sphere. I was just immersed constantly. And I was a young adult librarian. I graduated my MLS in 2007. So we're talking Twilight had like a few books. Stephanie Meyer had put out a few books by that point. Um, and it really just, to me, it was like a golden age of literature for teenagers. I mean, now it's gotten even better. I just, I'm so jealous. I'm still jealous of what teenagers have because that did not exist for me when I was a kid. Right. Um, I, I was a right. teenager. I was either reading, I was reading weird things like a biography of like George Burns. Like it doesn't make sense because there wasn't this young adult literature available to me. And so right. um, I feel like I'm forgetting where the question was going. Well, so tell me what YA, it's an audience and it's excellent definition there, but what's the, what's the age? So young adult literature um, can span, I mean, now we have, we have chapter books, we have middle grade, that's sort of a new thing. Um, we yeah. have younger YA, we might say like, you know, maybe kid, kids always read up, right? If you're 12, you're going to read about 14 year olds. If you're 14, you're, you're going to read about 16, 17 year olds. You're always going to read up. Um, but there is like younger middle grade, there's upper middle grade. And it just, it's going like your adolescent years are Span a ton of development. You know, what your 13-year-old is is doing is far different from what your 17, 18-year-old is doing. And so the literature really can reflect that. So I guess when you're talking about young adult literature, what it is and what it isn't, is it's about the adolescent experience, which is going to be a far cry from the adult experience. So let's take, for example, um, my first novel, Grunge Gods and Graveyards. I have a 17-year-old protagonist. It does take place in the 90s because I wanted it to. For That's the only reason. Um, it was a huge nostalgic trip. And I, I wanted to talk about alternative music, which is why I said it in the 90s. But my 17-year-old protagonist is going through um, incredible trauma when you think about it. She lost a mother. Uh, uh, her crush died. Like, you know, her father isn't really, really there. Her experience are going to be so much far different than than what my adult protagonist in my latest novel is going through, which is more like trying to figure out her life, how to make money, how to pay the bills, how to take care of her parent, as opposed to, you know, my 17-year-old mm-hmm. pro- protagonist trying to find independence uh, and things like that. So a lot of readers um, of YA literature are um, older. I mean, there are people, uh, you know, my age, your age, other, you know, because, um, because the stories are so rich and, and tend to um, uh, bend genre a little bit. They tend to sort of, you know, play with form and play with what, what things are going to be and write these epic, you know, books and all the rest of it. Do you find that that's true from your, from your, both your writing standpoint and your, um, and your being a librarian standpoint? So what I find great about YA literature is it's very progressive. 
what what you trends you're seeing, I don't want to call it trends, but what we're seeing in young adult literature, um, inclusivity and diversity, ha- I mean, that happens before it even gets to adult literature, I feel like. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've, because I've read so much YA in the past, that sometimes when I sit down with an adult novel, I'm like, man, it's taken a while to get to the, the you know, like the inciting incident. Like it's taking an awful long time because, you know, I guess in adult literature, it, there's an expectation of more of a lot more breathing room. And I, I've had it. <laughs> so um, I just got a review uh, for Death and a Dancing Queen um, from, from Library Journal, Library Journal. And one of the things they commented on um, that my agent did not care for, and I, you know, putting it out there, was that they said it would attract a YA audience. And that concerned her just because this is my first adult book. And she didn't want readers to be turned off by the fact that it might have a YA vibe. Now, the protagonist is 24 years old. It was not written for teenagers in mind. It was written for adult audiences. But maybe all that practice that I had, all of the work I've done in YA, you know, before, you know, my it's still my voice, but it had a like a YA vibe to it, I guess, according to the um, reviewer. It was very complimentary. They're like, give this to a teenager who's interested in reading mysteries. Right. You right. know, it. so I think because, you know, it's sometimes YA, even though, you know, you have long fantasies, I feel like they're tighter novels in a lot of way. Mm-hmm. There is a lot more action, a lot more banter, um, but a lot more kind of just getting to it. Well, and as you said, they're, they're, they tend to be more reflective of the world and of, of the world we're working towards. Um, so, you know, equity and inclusion and um, socioeconomic play, um, experiences and um, all kinds of different different life experiences are explored. Their social issues are explored there. I mean, it's not be that YA is easier <laughs> or isn't, um, isn't going to hit you hard with what they're talking about, um, which I think is interesting. I think teenagers, we tend to underestimate them sometimes, but, but, uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's not your mother's Nancy Drew. No. And that's, what makes it so much fun to read, I think, too. Right. It's um, the pro- how progressive it is. And teens get excited when they see characters that are just either different from themselves but and going through experiences that they're curious about, but also reflecting themselves as well. They're like, oh, this protagonist has a disability. So do I. I don't see many characters yeah. with disabilities. Um, this character comes from you know, the mid, you know, the Mideast, I never get to see characters like this. So the fact that Wyang has been so progressive, I feel like it's leading also leading adult literature in that, in that arena as well. We're starting to see more diversity in what we're putting, what adult literature is, is really putting out now. Yeah. No, it's an exciting time. We want it to be a um, not just a trend. We want this to be the way it moves forward. But it is an exciting time. So you, when you started your first novel with, and you're not the first person I've talked to who said they read books and went, "I if I could do this." <laughs> um, how did you teach yourself how to write a novel? I mean, it's it's it is a different skill set. So so what did you do to to get that craft moving? 
That is a good question. Um, I would try to model my work after authors I really loved. So one of my favorite authors, my favorite author in the entire world is Holly Black. She is a young adult author. She writes in a genre I do not write in. She writes in like fantasy, speculative fiction author. Her writing is so tight. Um, it's so like visual that I just would try to sort of model my work after hers. I just, mm -hmm. so that's sort of what I did in, in the early stages. And I would have a lot of false starts. I'd start something I'd stop, you know, um, I fussed around a lot and it took a long time. I think I drafted my, I must've been pregnant with my second kid, which just, that's a huge gap because I started potchkering around when I was a librarian. I didn't have children. And then it took to my second kid before I really sat my butt in the chair and was like, typey, typey, typey. Um, and then I just, I, I'm a much better editor. I was um, this editor at my college paper for two years. So I know how to edit. That is what I'm best at, I think. So I wrote crap and then I was like, I can just fix it in editing. <laughs> and that's sort of what I did. Um, and I think editing has really taught me how to write pretty much my whole life is just like, you know, Kim, can you read this and check it? Like I used to read my friend's papers in college and then fix it. And I'd write their resumes and their cover letters. And, um, I was also, you know, I wrote for the student newspaper. So I really had to learn how to write, um, like I, I just tight and neat kind of like, you know, all the meat, none of the filler. That's what I would, that's mm -hmm. what I would say. And you, the hard part when you first start is is getting that first draft written so that you can edit it. I mean, it's it can be a slog. So as you said, it took you a while to do it. Was that first novel um, that you wrote? Then uh, did it eventually get published? Did you event or or did was it a draw book? No, <laughs> was it a? <laughs> it was Grunge Gods and Graveyards. Okay, so. I think back to how stupid I was. Um, like, but I was writing it and I was, I remember saying to my husband, I'm like, Oh no, this will get picked up. This is amazing. Not amazing, but I was just so sure of myself in like the dumbest way possible. Um, but it was Grunge Guns and Graveyards. And I wound up taking an online, like a go at your own pace class, how to revise your novel. And I followed it. It's again at your own pace. And it took me six months I mean, she's hardcore. It was brilliant, but it took me six months. And then afterwards I queried it like, you know, everyone does. And, um, at this point it must've been 2012, maybe 2013. And I was getting a lot of feedback from, you know, like paranormal YA is dead. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> but wait, now it's realistic fiction. Nobody wants it. And, uh, so I wound up querying it to small presses and then it got picked up by Red Adept, which is a pretty great publisher. They don't publish YA anymore. Um, cause one thing that, um, I think a lot of the small imprints have learned is that YA, if you want to sell it to your market, teenagers, you need to be in bookstores and print on demand isn't going to really work. They're not e-readers. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, it, it did eventually get picked up. I mean, um, so I was lucky in, in definitely in that regard. And then did you, how did you keep going? So I really enjoyed my small press publishing experience. Um, I did not enjoy querying, I'll tell you that much. Um, I just, I, I was like, oh, maybe indie 
is the way to go for me. I would read K-boards, um, which was like, I haven't been on it in a long time, but it was a forum for indie authors. And I was so inspired by them. Indie authors are incredibly open about their struggles. They're open about their marketing. They're opening. They're very open about yeah. how much they make. Um, and I just thought it was a very welcoming community. And so I was like, you know, maybe I can just self-publish. And I, I, I did. I self-published um, a novel sequel to Grunge Gods and Graveyards. Um, I self-published two more books in a series that takes place in Key West. Then I self-published another novel that takes place in the 90s uh, called School Lies that I'm very proud of. I love that book. Um, and I, you know, I did what anybody would do. I hired cover, you know, cover artists. I, I, I hired a editor. I got my, I learned how to format myself. That was pretty easy, but I bought software. Um, I hired proofreaders. I did everything that you're supposed to do so that my book would look indistinguishable from a book that might be from Harper Teen or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, the downside of course is marketing is very difficult. I don't know how to do ads for authors. I still have yet to learn that. And, um, it wouldn't be in bookstores and, you know, it, it more than likely wouldn't get reviewed by the trade journals to get into libraries, which is really important to me. So that was kind of, that's, that's the biggest downside I felt like for the indie market was, um, getting it seen by people outside my warm market, like, you know, friends and family and things like that. Yeah, being an indie author is uh, is really understanding and running your own publishing house, um, and and figuring out how to do that. And as you're talking about distribution, I mean that's in the in the weeds a little bit on the publishing side of writing, but um, it is something to think about as you're thinking about how you're going to publish your book and you know where you're going to be submitting it is how, where's it going to be? Are people going to be able to find it in a bookstore or in a library? Um, and what does that look like? Because that, uh, you know, that's a different journey. Yes, it really is. Yeah. And it wasn't necessarily one I was like, I'm not going to do it. Uh, you know, the nice thing about being an indie author, I feel like is I did not have to trunk novels that I thought were worthy of being read because an agent, mm -hmm. I couldn't get an agent with it or, or couldn't get a publishing deal. So I, I put my work out there and I'm very proud of what I have put out. I have not, I don't be like, Ooh, you know, like a cringe moment. Oh, I shouldn't have. All my books are professionally done in my opinion. And they read like they are professionally done again, in my opinion. So, um, wow. and I'm grateful for it because, you know, if traditional publishing blows up in my face or, you know, I'm not cut out for it or something happens, we know this, business is incredibly crazy and, you know, uh, it's there for me, you know? Yeah. And, and I don't have to stop creating my art, you know? Well, as we talk, as I've talked to other people about the publishing journey and your writing journey are two separate journeys and, and you, you can work on your publishing journey, but you can't control <laughs> a lot of it. You can control your writing journey. So can let's talk a little bit more about that. Um, you know, building your craft and understanding and exploring different genres. How have you sort of kept fresh? Because in the meantime, you've also had a family. I mean, you've been balancing, you know, work and everything else. And I, I, I just offer that up as a, um, it, this is challenging to balance it all, um, but you've made space for your writing in addition to an incredibly active life. 
I have. I feel like I did better about making space when my kids were really little and kind of like in the house. They weren't really at school. And as they've gotten more space from them, like they're at school all day. Um, I feel like all that extra time has made me a little lazy. I don't know. I mean, I should have been working this morning, but I was cleaning. I was enjoying myself. Like I, I was actually cleaning to avoid doing work. That's probably what I was really doing. Um, but I guess I do better. I do better with a dead and I do better with someone breathing down my neck. And when you're an indie author, nobody's breathing down your neck. Like they're just aren't. Right. And at least, um, you know, having something ready for someone like, Hey, I'm expecting you to be done with this thing. And you're like, Oh, I have a deadline that I have to answer to. I just, I don't know. I, I, people providing me that structure is better for me than me providing it myself. I'm pretty bad about it, but, um, yeah, I, I wish I was better about my discipline. I am not, I am not better. It takes me a long time to do things needlessly. It shouldn't just does because I potch around and I don't focus. Um, the most focused I ever am is when I'm editing. The words are done and I have, you know, like an editorial letter and I have line edits to do and all that stuff. So then I am incredibly like in the zone. Don't bother me. Don't ask me to make dinner. Don't do anything. Um, but fortunately not yet. I'm still drafting. So what's your process like? So how long do you spend drafting? Do you plot? Um, you and I have spoken um, on a webinar for Sisters in Crime and, and offline about your your spreadsheet use, <laughs> which I, I, you know, we're all going to see her spreadsheets at some point. But how? what's your process like for writing a novel from idea to, you know, polished draft? So I'm reaching for a prop, but not, nobody can see but me and you. But the first thing I do is I get... 25 cent one subject notebooks I think they're 25 cents whenever they go on sale at the beginning of the school year I, I have like a million of them and so I just bust out, out like a notebook and then I just write my idea that I have like each notebook is its own book idea so one book one notebook per book idea and I just scribble in there like all right sometimes I'll have an idea for a theme like ooh, I want to talk about abusive power or maybe I'll have a theme where I want to like I really want to explore family dynamics um, sometimes I'll have a character in mind, like, Ooh, what if I, you know, uh, wrote about a young woman who's having to take care of her parents. Um, and I'll, or another idea, or maybe I have a bad idea. I'm like, wouldn't it be cool if this happened? So, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes I'll let it fester in there for a little bit, but then, a, then a name will come to me, a character name, um, maybe like a brief idea, an inspiration, um, you know. And I will just scribble in the notebook, like, you know, vomit on the page, so to speak. Just bleh. And I'll do that for a while until eventually I might have an idea for an opening scene. And so I, you know, or an, a, a first act and I will write down plot ideas. It's all just loose. And I will write, usually I'll write the first act. I'll definitely write a scene or two just to see if I can get a feel for the voice the way I want it to sound, you know, the tone, my voice isn't going to change, but the tone might change and things like that. And then once I have that in motion, I will then sit down and plot. And that spreadsheet is new to me. This is, I will plot intricately, but it's usually with index cards. So I'll have these index mm -hmm. cards. Um, and um, I'll do them in Scrivener where I'll have each scene. Cause I don't write in chapters. I write in scenes. 
Um, and my scenes are mm-hmm. usually like a thousand words to 1500 words. They can be smaller when I get to the end, they get smaller, but in the beginning they're longer. Cause they have a lot more like expository writing. So I will then start to plot with scene ideas to make sure that all my acts are balanced. Cause I write in four act structures. I have a big plot twist at the end of act two. I need act three to sort of be the same size as act two. And then act four is really small. Only with this recent book, I'm writing a sequel to um, my first Billy Levine novel. Did I bust out the spreadsheet just because I wanted something really organized to look at. Um, But interestingly enough, I find that I'm midway between plotting act three and I'm not quite sure what should happen next. So I'm wondering if I should stop plotting, write what I have so far in act three. um, acts one and two and whatever I have in three and then see if I can unravel some threads so that I can keep on going because to plot that way you really have to visualize the entire story from start to finish Mm -hmm. like I have to visualize it as if it's a tv series and I can't like I can't I'm in the middle of act three and I'm like uh I can't visualize what should go next so I think I need to actually write it to see where the story might carry me yeah. yeah. So you're, you're, you're a plotter and you'll continue to be a plotter, but at this point you're, you're, you're going to write in order to plot pants, figure out act three and, and keep moving. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I have to plot because I feel like with mystery writing in particular, like I think I, 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 I need to know the crime before the book. I have to, I, I often hear writers will be like, oh, I like to find out as I go who was the murderer. I'm like, hell no. No, 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 no. <laughs> I need to know who did it first. Otherwise, I don't know what I'm talking about. Like, how do I set the clues and the red rings and, you know, all that stuff. So I will always know how a book starts. I will always know how it ends. I've never, never not figured out an ending to my book. It's the getting there that I'm not sure. And I think in my right. particular case... You know, I'm connecting all the dots, one to two to three to four, but now I'm really deep in it. And I'm like, well, I could go this way. It might go this way. I don't know. I I think I'm going to have to write it to see if it's a little bit more clear. Well, and as you're plotting, are you working, because a novel also requires a few subplots in order to make it all go. So are you plotting those subplots as well? Because those can also sort of become more important or take on, you bring in a character who you didn't expect and then you gotta figure out where they go and yes yeah. 100% I have the subplots interwoven and I usually like subplot a subplot b subplot d c it depends um I am notorious for adding in a lot of subplots like my debut novel has a ton of them and I did get dinged in that I think Publishers Weekly was like there's a lot going on in here um it was a long book but I feel like it just expands the world and, you know, and, and I yeah. usually I'm pretty good about how it all leads together. So, um, yeah, yeah. I'm a big subplotter too. Well, and when you're writing a series, a couple of the subplots aren't resolved in the first book. I mean, they're, they're, they're series arcs. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so that, you know, you sort of have to keep, and, and it's surprising. I mean, it's surprising how your characters can show up and, give you a hard time about what you thought they should do. It amazes me every day that writers create entire worlds, entire human beings, entire stories from their brains. Like I think about that kind of frequently. I'm like, this is a whole world I just made up. 
It didn't, it yeah. doesn't exist. It's all something I created. Like I just, I find that incredible. It is incredible. And I don't think we stop and acknowledge that enough. Because <laughs> yeah, it's hard. <laughs> We're always, I mean, I whine a lot. I'm like, Oh, I got to do this. I got to do that. It's hard. Um, but it's so special. Maybe because we is. all interact with writers Sometimes that, you know, we can feel like a dime a dozen to each other because um, we spend so much time. I can do this. But like in my real world, nobody can do this. I don't I don't. My husband is not a writer. My children are not. I don't have friends like, you know, I have one friend locally. She's a writer. But, you know, it people are like, oh, you wrote a book. I'm like, yeah, I wrote a book. And then I'm like, I wrote a book. Like I've read a bunch of books. I'm amazed every time it happens. Yeah, it is. A, um, it is interesting. Isn't it? Um, what do you wish you'd known at, early in your writing career? Um, I wish I had branded myself a little bit better in the beginning. I, I honestly wish I could, but that's a really hard thing to like think that far ahead. And but I wish I kind of did brand myself a little bit better. I'd be like, figure out what kind of writer I want to be. I do like to write to entertain myself and I do write mysteries, but I've, you know, I've, I've gone from young adult to par- paranormal, you know, mystery to realistic mysteries. Um, you know, now I'm writing, a, you know, PI series. I have an idea for a historical mystery series that I, I think will be awesome too, but I kind of wish I just branded myself a little bit better, but that is a really hindsight is 2020 kind of thing. I don't know if anybody is going to know that starting out and you don't really want to lock yourself into something when you start out, but in hindsight, it would have helped me a little bit better. Um, What's the best piece of writing advice you've ever gotten and what's the worst? The worst. I'm probably, I'm pretty good at disregarding stuff that doesn't work for me. I don't know about the best either. I, it's really toxic to be like, you should write every day. I hear, I, I, I get that. I think consistency is key. Um, so I think people should work on their book, either if you're going to be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, like, you know, Monday through Friday, just the weekends. I do think consistency is key and I do as I say, not do as I do. Cause I really am not consistent. And when I am, I feel good. I'm like, Oh, I did work today. I was productive. But just working a little bit on it every day really helps. But I, um, some of the best writing advice, I guess, like Holly Lyle's How to Revise Your Novel class really taught me how to look at the book as a whole, understand theme. I never used to think about theme. Um, you know, really explore, like, what is it that I want to say? And so I've been using that a lot. A friend of mine, she's like, oh, I have this idea about something. I'm like, all right, well, what do you want to say? Like, what is it you want to say? You know, I, I say this to my students when I'm teaching about writing and grammar and all that stuff. Cause we have to, I teach GED part-time GED prep classes and we have to kind of dissect fiction. Like my students have to understand what foreshadowing is and, um, you know, figurative language, et cetera. So we do talk about theme and I always say like authors have something they want to express, something they want to say. Mm -hmm. And even if it's entertaining themselves, you know, with a mystery, there is still something they want to talk about, you know, to the audience, to the greater world as a whole. Like, these are my thoughts on this topic and this is how I'm going to explore it. Um, So, I mean, I don't know. That would be the advice I would give somebody. Like when you're sitting down, if you want to write a book, 
What is it you want to say? And I don't mean like, oh, mm-hmm. I want to tell the story about a girl who just, you know, covers a murder. That's not what you really want to say. That's just what you want to have your character do. What do you want to say? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the theme can also, um, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's something we don't think of about as much early on um, because it also can be incredibly helpful when you're writing those subplots. I mean, everything has to work with the theme. Mm-hmm. So it's like, if you're stuck, it's like, okay, this is, this whole book is about um, making amends. This, that's the theme of this entire book. So how am I going to make the subplot work within that theme? <laughs> um, and that can be very helpful. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think we lose yeah. sight of that because we're thinking, you know, how do I get my character to go from A to Z? And mm-hmm. then, you know, which is important, but we really need to understand, like, what is it that we want to say? I, I wrote one book. It, is not been, it has not seen the light of day. I just wanted to talk about, um, like, abusive power. That was what I mm-hmm. wanted to discuss. I was like, ooh, I'm really in the mood. It was dark. It was darker than what I've written before. And I was just, I want to explore abusive power. Yeah. And who knows, that book could show up or parts of it or, or, you know, it'd be exercised in a historical. I mean, you may, some of those characters may exist somewhere else. There's no such thing as wasting your time oh, I agree. when you're yeah. writing. Yeah, I agree completely. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned that you write in a four-act structure. Can you sort of explain what that is to our listeners? Oh, sure. So I got, oh, this is good advice I received. Well, I look, went looking for it. I found it online. I guess P.D. James utilized the four-act structure. It's also called like the two-body plot. So basically in the first act, the reader is introduced to the suspects, to the crime, you know, um, to the characters. And the second act, the way I look at it is like, The first act is like, who are we and what are we doing here? And the second act, my protagonist is like, well, you know, I'm going to go in the most logical way forward, right? I'm going, and that's usually the the, um, main character is just sort of um, like finding their way, reading the clues, Mm -hmm. going in different directions. This one seems like the most logical, they'll go this way. And then at the end of the second act, there is another body that turns up. So it could be another crime. It could be another, another actual murder. I like it when there's more than one crime to solve, particularly in Mm -hmm. my reading. And then that changes the direction. The protagonist is now, oh, I had this wrong. Let's change course. Mm -hmm. And then in the third act, the protagonist is a lot more confident in where they're going and what they're looking for. And then the fourth act, obviously, you have the end of the third act is like the crescendo, the climax. Aha, you're the murderer, and this is why. Um, And then in the fourth act, it's your resolution. So mm-hmm. I've been doing, I did that for um, my last book and I did it, I think for the one before that too. And it's just, it's really worked for me. I don't want to say it's formulaic kind of is, I guess, in some ways, but it just makes sense for, especially a private eye um, in, in the series that I'm working on makes sense for how she would solve her cases. And it gives me structure. Mm-hmm. And I also like the idea of salt, like another body turning up or like a surprise or something. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Or another crime that we don't realize is related to the first crime until later on. Yeah. I mean, I always love that. It doesn't <laughs> have like, to be oh. a dead body. It just has to be yeah, no. another crime where you're like, ooh, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's always fun. Yeah. Um, and do you 
have so where your inciting incident happens in the middle of the first act or or are you like how how fast do you put that inciting incident so for listeners um you've all we've talked about this before but the inciting incident isn't the reader unless you're dissecting the book doesn't have to know oh that's the inciting incident but for the writer that's where everything changes that's where the story really starts that's where the call to action happens um you know so it could be a town meeting and and you know that that's where everything happened that caused Mm-hmm. the cascade later. Um, so do you, where do you put your inciting incident or where do you think that's, that should go in this structure? In my structure, the inciting incident usually goes at the end of the first act. Okay. And the first act can be any uh, 10, 10 scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, so that's usually where I put it. So I feel like I end each act on a big thing where it gets bigger, mm-hmm. gets progressively bigger. And that's been working mm-hmm. for me. Like I know there's terms like pinch point and stuff like that and I don't know where those go necessarily in my I but with my act structure my four act structure I can figure out like you know and I I make things progressively harder for my you know protagonist and you know more conflicts and build up and things but usually at the end of each act is really your big your big stuff that happens yeah yeah and if you have other stuff happening, that's fine, mm-hmm. you know, but, but just disperse it. Don't, don't load it all in the third act or put it all in the beginning and then bore the readers till the end. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta keep them reading. Yeah. I mean, yeah. one of the, I, I, I've been very fortunate and I have not had anyone say, look, this needs some structural rewrites. Like, thank goodness. I think the structure really works. I've been, I've been very lucky. Um, structural rewrites are like, oh, we have to, that would probably be a nightmare. Like, no, we have to fix this. Um, and, and yeah. I'd like to think after like six books, I'm not making those mistakes. That's not to say I want in the future if I'm trying something right. different and experimenting, but it's probably like my biggest nightmare. No, whenever you get an editorial letter, it's like, don't tell me I need well, to remove <laughs> scenes. Please don't. <clears throat> Um, well, and if, if people pants, then they shouldn't be afraid of moving scenes. Like if, if that's the thing, if you're, if you're, if you don't plot in advance and a lot of people don't, I mean, I've talked to incredibly prolific writers who pants the whole thing and write out of order and everything else in word. I mean, I don't know how they do it, but they do, but if you need to move things around, it's not, not, it's not in concrete. You can, you can change anything, um, to make it work, to make sure the beats are there mm-hmm. and that the, the, you know, the action keeps moving up and everything else, because that, uh, the mystery genre is about that action and that rising tension and things getting worse for everybody. Yeah. I mean, and right? readers have expectations, you know, and I don't, yes. um, you know, Especially like in certain subgenres, there's definitely expectations, you know, like in, yeah. in, in a private eye investigation, you do expect their, you know, their expectations. And one of those being obviously that the crime will be solved at the end. Justice will be handed out. I mean, that's like the hard boiled, you know, mantra right there. Yeah. So I'd like to just think you know, that's what I'm keeping on on track for. I definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I if I was experimenting with. um with structure, then I would, I would have that expectation, but with how much I plot and how much time I take, I would be really upset if I had to move things. I'd be like, what? No. Spend so much time figuring this out. And how long do you figure out before you start writing? I mean, now 
<clears throat> you mentioned that you, you may start writing in the middle of the, the plotting and go back, but typically, you know, that's the thing. Plotters, uh, you know, it's a process. It's a, it's a few weeks. I mean, it's a process. It's yeah. Again, not a great example. Cause I teach naturally. Cause I'm like, I, I don't have a fire under my butt as much as I need it to be. Um, I mean, if my scenes are like a thousand to fifteen hundred words, it depends on what I'm writing. The Hanukkah scene that cracked me up and was eighteen hundred words, and it flew by because it was so fun. Um, and really, I didn't. I just wrote it. I, I knew. I knew in my head. I was like, I want to write a scene set. You know, first night of Hanukkah. I'm just going to do it because <laughs> um, there's a bunch of Jewish humor I wanted to insert in there. So I just, you know, I'm keeping it. It goes. But I don't know. Uh, I mean, I found that I don't want to do minimum word count. Like, oh, I have to write 2,000 words today kind of thing. No. I'm not doing that anymore. I'll, I'll spend time. I'll be like, I'm going to spend an hour working on my book. Yeah. Uh, whatever I get, I get. But I'm going yeah. to measure in time rather than in word count. I just don't think that's healthy. So I don't do it anymore. I used to be like, I need to get 1,000 words done. And don't get me wrong. I'm very proud of myself. When I've written a thousand, two thousand words, very proud of myself. But um, it it doesn't, you know. Then if I I'm only eking out five hundred words, I'm depressed. Like ah, I don't need that. So yeah. um, I don't know. So right now I have written, I've written the first act and I've written some of the second act, and then I was like, I have to plot this out because things are not going quite where they need to go in order for me to end up in this place at the end. So. I'm going to go back and then see, I'm going to start fussing around. It does, it does mean some editing, which I don't usually like suggest I do, like suggest anyone do before they've sort of finished, but I do have to. Right. Cause I, I do get excited when I've written something great. Like I, I do love, love my darlings and I don't want to kill them. If I have a really great word, like sentence, I will figure out how to reuse it at some point. Yeah. Like, you know, like I'm yeah. like, no, this is this is brilliant. I'm putting this back in here somewhere. <laughs> I'm not kill I don't kill very much. How long between your finishing that first draft do you let it sit before you start editing? I don't I, I don't need it to percolate too long because uh the editing is my favorite part. And w- what I'll do is let's say I finish the draft, I'll take my notebook again, I'll read through it and I'll be like, eh. I'll just start making basically my own editorial list of things I need to fix. And then I'll do the whole thing and then I'll go back and start fixing it. And I'll, I'm taking that Scrivener course, which I'm very excited for that we're doing in January. But I do like, I will flag, I think I'll like color coordinate and Scrivener. I'll be like rough first draft and then I'll change some of the length. I'll make be like polished or, you know, revised. I'll just call it revised. And then I'll go through, but then I'll just be like, I'll be like doing dishes like, Oh, I should do this. And then I'll go back and I'll write it in my book and stuff like that. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know how many drafts I do because, you know, I might write five drafts of one scene, but only two drafts of a scene or, um, you know, my first act, I might've tweaked to death, but my fourth act, I didn't have to. So I never really know how many drafts I write. Like it's just, so yeah. once I've written the whole damn thing, um, now this is post, you know, when I, when my first book took six months to edit, that is not a thing that happens to me anymore at this stage of the game with my plotting. Once I finished a draft, I could probably have the draft ready to go to a friend in, in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, when you're plotting, I, I think that that is a first draft in so many ways because you're, you know, you're, you're, it structures there and a lot of meets there. And, and then you're just, you know, you're writing the scenes, but it's, you've already thought about them so much that um, it does, it does tend to produce a draft that's um, ready to go a little bit faster. Yeah. And I usually send it to somebody who I'm like, and I've sent her things because I'm like a little bit babyish about my writing. Like I'm protective of it. I don't like to show people things until I think they are very clean, not beautiful, but you know, my drafts, my first drafts are pretty clean, like grammatically, like everything's on point. Um, like language wise, that's not to say my character doesn't need developing or anything like that, but I have center stuff where I'm like, just, I don't know what to put in this chapter. So if you have any thoughts, let me know. But yeah, it's like my agent wouldn't, I wouldn't send her anything like that. Like she would get it's polished, you know, it's shining to me and same thing with my editor. Um, cause I just, it's like, I think of it like, you know, you don't want anybody to come into your dirty house, you know? Yeah. Oh, I didn't clean. Don't come in. That's how I feel about my writing. <laughs> The bathroom's dirty. Don't come in. <laughs> so in February 2023, you have a book coming out, <clears throat> Death of a Dancing Queen. Tell me about that journey. Ooh, good one. So I wrote Death of a Dancing Queen. Uh, I finished it, I don't remember, 2019, 2020? Must have been around there. So it's been a long time coming. But um <sighs> This is the book that got me my agent, uh, who I love dearly, love this woman. Um, and we, we originally had an invitation to go back to, um, pitch it to a publisher, Thomas and Mercer. So I, I had in an off chance previously submitted a book to Thomas and Mercer without an agent through a friend it, and, and they had read it and took it to acquisitions and it didn't go through. And, but they did say, Oh, Please submit us something new. So when I Death of a Dancing Queen, which didn't have that title back then, um, we went to Thomas and Mercer first and they passed on it as, as, you know, basically I got this a lot. It was not gritty enough for their audience, but maybe too gritty for other publishers. It, you know, hard-boiled novels can be somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. And I find when you straddle certain aspects, it's harder sometimes to place things, but they're very lovely, but they said no. So then we went on submission and basically yada, 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 18 months later, <laughs> um, uh, my agent heard that Angry Robot Books, which publishes incredible science fiction and fantasy, they're a UK publisher. They're, in, they're mighty. They're a mighty independent, I like to call them. They were starting a new crime fiction imprint. And so my agent told the editor, my editor, Eleanor, she's like, oh, I have a book for you. It's Veronica Mars in New Jersey. Um, and <laughs> Eleanor was like, send it to me in a lovely British accent. Send it to me. I can't do a British accent. She's like, and, and, um, she read it in days and I never had experience. Like I had, while I was on submission, I had gotten to acquisitions with another publisher that did turn me down. I won't name them just cause they, but that's not important. Anyway, they were like, um, female led PIs don't sell, which is a weird thing to hear because I have been seeing, hard-boiled novels with with female private eyes being published now but they were like they don't sell we don't you know that was their big thing and um so I got turned down and I was really heartbroken about that because I got led on for like two months where I was told I was going to acquisitions I got to acquisitions they're passed 
they had to do some more finagling, blah, blah, blah. Two months later, I didn't have a book deal. So I was kind of heartbroken and I was like, well, I guess I just have to move on. And then this opportunity at Detora, uh, Angry Robot Books is new crime fiction imprint. Um, and to have that, I immediately felt different. To have an editor be like, we love it. You know, everyone loves it. We're so excited. It just felt different. It was incredibly exciting for me. Um, and it's been a wonderful experience. So the book took a while to kind of get to the right spot. But once it did, it was like a nice fit. So I'm really... Uh, I feel really blessed, um, really lucky, and I want to be able to keep writing books for Detura. So I hope this book finds success and I can prove PI, P, uh, female PI fiction doesn't sell kind of nonsense. I can prove them wrong. Um, yeah. Because I want to be able to in the series. I'm working on the second book. I have a great idea for the third book and the, even the fourth book. I have an idea, like an idea. I will get a notebook yeah. at some point. It's just like a glimmer of an idea, but I want to be able to keep just like any writer wants to keep doing this. Um, I want to keep doing this and I just, I need things out of my control to happen. <laughs> I cannot control <laughs> whether people go to the bookstore and pick it up and buy it. I cannot, I mean, I can control the writing. I can control the story, but that's it. That's all I can do. Well, you know, you, you've talked about luck a couple of times and you know, luck is, um, hard work meets opportunity. Um, and so it's not, it's not just the fates coming down and saying, Oh, you know, it's that you, you know, you show up and you've been writing books and you've been sending them out and you've been imagining what you want your career to look like. And I think that that's a, um, a gift, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's what helps you move forward. So what I'm also hearing from you is, is folks who are on this journey, don't give up because, you know, it's going to, when it works, it's going to be how it's supposed to work, not how necessarily you thought it was going to work. Yeah. I mean, I can't not write. I mean, I, I have had conversations with some writers that are really, you know, down and I get it. Yeah. Um, especially cause I am, an active person. I, I, it's, which is why indie publishing was so attractive to me in the beginning. Cause I can control everything and I can put it out. Nobody can tell me now. Um, but it's, if you're just enjoy your art, that's what I just want to be like, enjoy it. If you don't enjoy it, if it's, if, you know, writing is work, don't get me wrong. It's a lot of work because there's expectations and things like that. But you know, for those who are maybe like feeling just demoralized by the business, which that I am, I can relate to hardcore, just write something that's enjoyable for you. I wrote Death of a Dancing Queen because I missed Veronica Mars. Mm. And I wanted to just write my own. It was basically like, almost like writing fan fiction. You know, it's, it's my own character, but I was like, I really miss Veronica Mars. And so I wrote to entertain myself. And I think if you're entertaining yourself, then obviously it's not time wasted. You're having fun. You're doing something great. And then, you know, and then you just put it out in the world and see what happens. Now, you're the chapter liaison for Sisters in Crime, uh, and uh, do which is an amazing amount of work and an amazing, you're doing an amazing job with it um, because Sisters in Crime has a lot, has over 50 chapters worldwide and uh, lots of members are members of chapters. Uh, but what, what has being a member of Sisters in Crime meant to you in your writing journey? 
So sisters in crime is my writing family. That's how I look at it. Um, I just, I, I love community. I'm an outgoing person and writing is a solitary experience. I think, um, we, and we all, it's a solitary, it's like a solitary action of writing. You're in your house by yourself and you're writing, but we all feel the same feelings when we're writing, you know, elation, despair, like, you know, the roller coaster of emotions when you're writing. And I just feel like I, I get to share that with my sisters in crime family. And I like feeling like also that writing isn't just drafting and publishing. It's communing with your fellow person, your fellow writer. And I, I have always felt like at least working on behalf of sisters in crime, then I am, I am involved in writing even when I am not writing, you know, I'm helping other writers. I'm learning from other writers. I'm facilitating, mm -hmm. you know, um, things within the chapters and national and talking to people and getting to kind of just, you know, explore all the wonderful things that sisters in crime offers. I like, I like being a salesperson, um, for the organization as well. Like I like going about your con and doing my office hours and telling, G'day, are you a member? <laughs> I like that. Um, it brings me a lot of joy and so, yeah, it's my writing family and it's, you know, my water, it's like family and my colleagues, my water cooler people. And, um, but it makes this profession so far less lonely, much less lonely. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I love. It definitely more. does. Yeah. Well, thank you for all you do for Sisters in Crime, oh. and thank you for writing wonderful books. Thank you. And um, and you know, best of luck with this new new endeavor, thank Death you. of a Dancing Queen. I love the title. Thank you, and <laughs> I just hope people read it. <laughs> Please read it. I always say this: if you love it, tell everyone, and if you don't love it, just don't tell me. <laughs> That's an excellent way of putting yep. it. Yes. Um, well, on that note, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Kim. Thanks for having me. I really, I like, I like hanging out with you. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.